Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Galatians 2, 15 through 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because works of the law, by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For though through the law I was <clears throat> through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all this morning. Congratulations, you found us. That's, that's a, a good win this morning. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we uh, once more come to you this morning, Lord, grateful for the finished work of Christ. Lord, we know that it is only through his righteousness, through his sacrifice on our behalf that we can come before you this morning. So, Lord, we are grateful for this incredible privilege of coming to you and, and of um, knowing you by faith. Lord, as we come before you this morning, Lord, we know that we live in a broken world. Uh, there is brokenness in so many places in so many ways. Father, we think of what the Psalms say, um, that we are to pray for the peace of Israel. And so this morning, Lord, we pray for Israel as they are at war um, with Hamas and that region. And so, Lord, we pray that you would grant them peace. Um, Father, we pray that your good purposes would be accomplished in that part of the world. Um, Father, we know that there is um, brokenness in many places, um, not least of which in, in our country, in our own communities. And so, Father, we pray for peace here. And we pray, Lord, that your good purposes would be accomplished here including in our own lives, Lord. May we submit our lives to you um, in every area, Father, as we have come before you this morning confessing our sins, um, asking for your cleansing. Um, Lord, we recognize, Father, that we are left to our own devices. Father, we are a sinful people. And so we are grateful once again for what Christ has done for us, Lord. And um, we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, um, we are in a sermon series called First Things First, and uh, we're exploring the gospel and its implications as we walk through, the, through Paul's letter to the Galatians. And Galatia, just a kind of quick review, Galatia is in um, what would be modern-day Turkey. And so Paul is writing to these folks in Galatia. He is reminding them of the truth of the gospel, and he's warning them about some false teachers that they were dealing with. And over the past couple weeks, we've kind of laid some foundational stuff as we've gone through 
um, the first two chapters so far, um, almost two chapters, and we've seen that there's only one gospel message. There's only one gospel. Anything else would be a false gospel, and Paul warns them very strongly about false gospels. And we've seen that the gospel is a message from God himself, that this isn't something that's made up, this isn't Paul's invention, that this is something that comes straight from God. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a very um, specific part of the gospel message, and we're going to see um, the, the doctrine of justification. We're going to consider that doctrine. Now, don't tune out. This is, this is actually really important. It it sounds like distant theology, but it's really practical for our lives. Um, uh, One one more thing about that is I think a lot of times when we hear, okay, this is going to be about the gospel, a lot of us can kind of tune out and feel like, oh, yeah, I already know that. Um, I had a defining moment in my life. I was 13 years old, and I showed up for Sunday school one day, and uh, my teacher uh, had decided to do Bible trivia that day in class. And I thought, this is great. I've been growing up in church. I'm going to do great at this game. I'm going to demolish everyone. I'm going to be so good at Bible trivia. And um, if you've ever played Bible trivia, you know that it's hard. (laughs) And what I discovered that morning is I didn't know anywhere near what I thought I knew. And uh, I think we can sometimes make assumptions about the gospel, especially we can sometimes assume that other people know the gospel. And uh, from my experience, that's not the case. Uh, yesterday, I was kind of actually thinking about this message, and yesterday I was in AutoZone, of all places, buying brake pads for my wife's car, and um, I'm, I'm in AutoZone, kind of thinking about this, making small talk with the guy, and I decided to do an informal survey. So I asked, do you know what this word gospel means? Have you heard this before? And uh, the first guy I talked to, he said, um, I, I think it's a religious word, but I didn't grow up religious at all. My family and I, we never did that. And I think it, and I said, okay, that's pretty good. You know, it is a religious word. Do you know what it means? And he said, well, I think it's like a a story, maybe a tale. And then he, then he paused and he's like, I I don't mean it's not true, you know, but, but maybe like something that's passed down through the generations. I said, that's pretty good. You know, that's, you're not wrong there. That's pretty good. And so then his other, other guy, coworker came out. and, And so I asked him, do you know what this word gospel means, and uh, he had no idea, none whatsoever. And so I got to share what the gospel is. The gospel, the word means good news, and in ancient times, they would, you know, they would go out and proclaim the gospel message would be a proclamation that would go out city by city. Oftentimes, it would be proclaiming, there's a new king, good news, there's a new king, and they would come and proclaim this message. And then Christians picked up that word, and said, oh, that's really good. We can, we can use that word. And so the good news of the gospel that Christians proclaimed is that there is salvation in Christ, that our king has come, that he has brought salvation, that we have forgiveness of our sins. We no longer face the judgment of God, but we're given eternal life. And so I got to share that a little bit. So my sampling size was really small, but of the two people I talked to, they didn't know the gospel. Now, my wife has been doing something very similar. She works in um, pregnancy centers, in in Christian pregnancy center ministry, and she's been doing that for 10 years. And for 10 years, she has been asking pretty much the same question of, of, do you know what the gospel is? Or are you familiar with the gospel? And um, in her experience for 10 years, you know, hundreds and hundreds of clients, um, she's had like two or three or four 
that have been able to explain the gospel, that actually knew the gospel. Most of these people, hundreds of people, either were confused about the gospel, had some kind of confused idea, or just had no idea whatsoever. Like the second guy that I talked to, you know what the gospel is? Not a clue, right? So I think there's, there's a need for us to, to remind ourselves of these things, to make sure we're clear about it, but also so that we can pass these things on to others and be clear with them. So we're going to be looking at this doctrine, this justification, of, justi- justification by faith alone, And we're going to walk through this passage. We're going to consider Paul's explanation. We're going to consider what amazingly good news this is for us. Um, The main idea in this passage is that Christ died so that we can be made right with God, which implies the problem, right? There is a problem, and that's that man is not right with God, that mankind has sinned against God, essentially declaring war on God, that there's rebellion in um, not only Adam and Eve, but in all of us, and that that sin has had devastating effect. It's brought death. It will bring the judgment of God. Um, It has led to a broken relationship with God. And so Paul's main concern is how do we get ourselves made right with God? How, How are people made right with God? And as you, as you look at this, really there's two competing options, and it sort of comes down to who gets to be the hero in your story, right? Is this a story all about you, or is this a story all about Christ? Who is going to be the solution to your problem? Who gets all the glory? Is it you, or is it Christ? And that's really what Paul is pressing into. And so we're going to see kind of break down in this passage, the first two verses, Paul declares the doctrine of justification, verse 15 and 16. And then he spends a few verses clarifying that doctrine. And then in verse 21, he defends this doctrine. So we're just going to walk through this. I want to explain Paul's logic here. And then we're going to to consider what this means really for you and I. Um, So right there at the beginning, you see in verse 15, he says, um, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, it's an interesting statement. And um, a little bit of background here. If you were with us last time, you remember the end of the the preceding few verses. Paul is confronting the Apostle Peter, which is a pretty bold thing to do. Paul is confronting Peter, and the reason is Peter, who believes in the same gospel, teaches the same gospel, has devoted himself to proclaiming this gospel. Peter has been hanging out with Gentiles, going along you know, recognizing that we are one in Christ. And then some peer pressure crept in. And he decided, okay, I'm going to distance myself from the Gentiles because some of these Jewish believers feel uncomfortable about this. And Paul comes along and says, no, 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 Peter. You're implying that the Gentiles are lacking something, that they need something more, that they're like they're like second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. You know, you got the Jews. You know, if, if you really want to be good, you need to do, make sure that you do some Jewish things along with the gospel. And what Paul's saying is, is no. That is, that is not living consistently with the gospel. So these verses that we're looking at today is probably continuing on Paul's discussion with Peter, right? It may not be word for word. Maybe it's a summary of what he said there. But he's explaining these things to Peter. So he says to Peter, 
Look, Peter, you and I, we are Jews by birth. We're not like those Gentile sinners. And, and that phrase, Gentile sinners, kind of sounds derogatory, right? That's, that's rough. You know, I'm a Gentile. That's, that sounds rough. Um, it may be derogatory because it was a phrase that these Judaizers were using, the, the false teachers, to kind of speak out against what was going on there. Um, but there is some reality to it, okay? So um, I just want to read a couple verses here. So first, Paul talks about the benefits of being a Jewish person. So this is from Romans 9. Paul, speaking of his fellow Jewish people, he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So being a Jew, there were some real benefits. You know, they kind of have the inside track. They've been given so much information, so all these promises that they've been given about how it is that a person um, is made right with God. And then, on, in contrast, he shares a little bit about the Gentiles. Over in Ephesians, he talks about this. Um, so, to the Gentiles, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So the Gentiles really did come into the world seemingly at a disadvantage. And so Paul says, look, we ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, but look where he goes. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul says, Peter, yes, we have an advantage, but not in the sense that being a Jew saves us. We're not saved by that. We're not saved by keeping the law. We're saved by being justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. So what does he mean by works of the law? And all kinds of, I mean, you could probably fill this room with the pages of, of what people have written about what does it mean about the works of the law? You know, is this Is this just the ceremonial law, or is this all the moral law? And some would say, well, Paul's objection here is just to this circumcision issue, right? Paul's still going to uphold, you know, you got to keep the Ten Commandments to get in, right? But Paul really explains this pretty clearly, and we're going to see it as we go through Galatians, but I'll I'll at least point out in Galatians 5.3, Paul says, I testify again to every man who accepts, uh, accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You you can't break it up. So it's not like you get to pick and choose what rules are going to apply and and we need to still be good people. And if we're good enough people, then that'll earn merit with God. Um, It's the same thing that James 2.10 says. It says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Here's how we would say that. A lawbreaker is a lawbreaker right? Whether you break one law or all of them, a lawbreaker is a lawbreaker. So when Paul says a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, he's talking about the whole Old Testament law. He's setting the whole thing aside. Now, that's crazy. So Paul was a Pharisee. You remember that? Paul grew up like he's, he's, He's well-trained. He, he learned under Gamaliel, who's one of the like, famous Jewish teachers. 
He's a Pharisee. He knows the value of the law. And yet he's saying, that's not how we're saved. We're not saved by the law. Instead, we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what's that word justified mean? Um, This is important. The word justified means declared righteous. We are declared righteous through faith in Christ. So this is borrowing sort of like courtroom language. You know, you'd hear in the courtroom, the gavel goes, not guilty, right? That's kind of, this is fly. It's, it's like, a, what in the world? <laughs> so, anyway, it's just really after me. Um, so that, that fly is guilty. It is absolutely guilty. Judgment is coming. Anyway, um, so the, the language of the courtroom of declaring not guilty, that's, that's what this is referring to. So it's not saying made righteous, like God is going to help you. He's going to help you be a better person so that you're good enough on your own to get in. It's not what this is saying at all. This is saying you will be declared righteous before God through your faith in Jesus Christ. So, and it's, it's crazy because it's not just that he looks at us and he says, not guilty. It's more than that. He looks at us and he says, you are fully righteous, just like my son, Jesus Christ. The, the righteousness of God placed in our lives, placed upon us, counted to our account. So, um, you know, this, this, was a, this was a big debate in church history, you know, this, this whole idea of justification. And back in the 1500s, you have the Protestant Reformation that Protestants breaking away from the Catholics, and they, they spent long hours working through all this stuff, and then they wrote things down. And so they wrote down some catechisms that are basically um, their recorded history of how they understood these things. And there's a really helpful one. So um, the Heidelberg Catechism, I'm sure you guys probably read that on your way here this morning. The, the Heidelberg Catechism, written in 1563, Um, Question 60 goes like this. How are you righteous before God? How are you righteous before God? And the answer that they give is only by true faith in Jesus Christ. And it goes on to explain. It says, in spite of the fact that my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have not kept any one of them, and that I am still ever prone to all that is evil. Nevertheless, God, without any merit of my own, out of pure grace, grants me the benefits of the perfect expiation of Christ, imputing to me his righteousness and holiness, as if I had never committed a single sin or had ever been sinful, having fulfilled myself all the obedience which Christ has carried out for me, if only I accept such, favor with a trusting heart. Isn't that a powerful statement? It is not through my efforts that I am saved. It is through Christ. And so we're being given a choice here, right? So we can handle this issue of righteousness before God on our own, or we can trust Christ for it. Um, If we try to be justified by works of the law, it's just an ongoing struggle. Um, It's just a continual, like, am I living up to it? Um, if we are justified by Christ, the work is finished once and for all. Now, Paul's going to go on and explain, as he's talking here, likely to Peter, we already know this, right? This is, this is what all Christians have embraced 
as believers in Christ. So he goes on in verse 16 to say, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. So Paul is just reminding Peter of the gospel, right, and and the Galatians here that he's writing to. Um, They know this message. He's just driving home the fact that you can't have it both ways, right? It can't be by faith in Christ and through trying really hard to be a good person. It's got to be one or the other. Um, Either we need Jesus or we don't need Jesus. Now, that was controversial in their day, right? The Judaizers, these, these false teachers were coming along saying that you need Jesus plus something, that you need to keep the Old Testament law. Um, that was controversial um, a few hundred years ago during the Protestant Reformation. Um, the, the situation at that time, the, um, many of the Catholic theologians were teaching that there was this sort of like semi-righteousness. You could like get, you could get halfway there, right? So you need semi-righteousness, and that'll be kind of your first step on your way to being justified. And so you still need Christ, but you, can, you get part of the way there on your own. And really, this is controversial, I would say, in our own time in our own day. Um, There are many different religious groups in this community. And um, there are probably uh, quite a few, I would say, and I I think you probably could, I mean, we could name them, but um, there are quite a few that are not relying on the finished work of Christ for their righteousness. And so the problem is we can't have it both ways. Are you trusting Christ as your Savior or are you trusting yourself? right? Consider that. Are we leaning on our own works of righteousness to to earn merit with God? Um, Over in Romans 11, it says it this way. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace, right? That's the point, right? We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And that's really important because Paul goes on to say here, By works of the law, no one will be justified. Law obedience doesn't work. It doesn't work in saving us. And that's not because the law is bad. Um, Paul does not believe that the law is bad. He was a Pharisee. He understands the goodness of the law. He just knows that we can't do it. We're we're never going to make the, the leap and be able to do it. So Romans 8, he says, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The problem wasn't the law, the problem was us. Okay, so he goes on. So basically what we're seeing here, verse 16, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we've probably, we've probably if we're here, heard this at least before. Paul's going to go on and deal with some objections, okay, questions that arise. And this is important because these questions are going to arise anywhere you hear the gospel proclaimed. So the very first one is, doesn't justification by faith promote sin, right? If you take away all the rules, aren't we just going to do whatever we want to? That's the question. And so what he says here, verse 17, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Isn't Jesus just encouraging sin? Jesus removes the law, so now you can just go do whatever you want to? Paul's answer No, (laughs) certainly not. Absolutely not. And it's the same answer he gives over in Romans 6 where he raises that question. No, that's not how it is. Now, he's going to go on and explain how that's not the case, but right here he just says, that's ridiculous. 
No, Jesus isn't a servant of sin. Jesus died to save us from our sins. Clearly, that's not the direction he's moving. Um, so then he goes on and he asks, well, what's wrong with returning to the law? Okay, so verse 18. If I rebuild what I tore down, meaning the, the law is no longer there, present in his life, it's been set aside. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Now, one of the really interesting things here is how condensed this is. Like, sometimes I wish the Bible was longer, right? Like, just give us a couple more sentences on this to spell this out for us, Paul. That would be really helpful. Um, so, so what's he talking about here? Well, Paul says that returning to the law, rebuilding what was torn down, is sinful, that that's ultimately missing the point of what the law was for. The law could not bring life. All it brought was condemnation and death. And so the purpose of the law, really, he's going to talk about later, is to point us to Christ. It's to show I'm a sinful person and I need a Savior. And so that's what the law was for. And if I rebuild the law, if I bring that back into my life, if I cling to these old set of rules, all I'm doing is showing I can't keep these rules. I'm just proving again that I am a sinner. That's the point that Paul's making. So then he goes on to make this contrast, this crazy contrast. He says, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Now, again, here's the Pharisee Paul saying, I died to the law so that I might live to God. There's this contrast. You get to choose. You either can live for the law, live to the law, or you can live in a way that pleases God. <laughs> what? I thought the whole point of the law was to help us live lives that were pleasing God. Paul goes on to say, no, you, you can't. The, the real way you honor God, well, that's what he goes on to next here. So his, the last thing that he's addressing here is without the law, how is a person supposed to honor God? And that's really the question. If we take all the rules out, how is a person supposed to honor God? Look at what he says in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, this, this is sort of like a really condensed manual for the Christian life. If all you had was verse 20, you've got a pretty good start, right? He, he lays out for us what it looks like to live the Christian life. And really, it's all about identifying ourselves completely with Jesus Christ in every aspect of our lives, completely identified, linked up, I'm with him, he's my savior, I'm following him, everywhere he goes, I'm going to go. My, my wife right now um, is down in Arizona, and she's hanging out with her um, nieces and nephews while um, her sister and her, and Josh and Sharon are off in Hawaii, they're having fun. Um, so Kim's with nieces and nephews, and her little niece Vivian is like attached to the hip, just following Kim around everywhere she goes, you know. Um, just has to be with Aunt Kim. That's kind of a picture of what we're looking at with Christ. We are attached at the hip to Christ. Everywhere he goes, we go. We're going to follow him in all things. And so, really, you see sort of like a three-point outline on how to, how to be with Christ, follow Christ in this. 
Um, the first thing is Christ gave up his life and died. And so we need to give up our lives and die, metaphorically, die to our old way of life. Everything that we used to do, that's gone, right? That old way of life is dead. And so he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Okay, I'm going to make an obvious statement here. Crucifixion is unpleasant. <laughs> is that fair? Um, yeah, whatever ancient history you've read, crucifixion is not pleasant. I think we all know that. And yet that's what we're being called to do is to die to our old self. So repentance is, a, is like step number one in the Christian life, right? We turn away from that old self, that whole life that we wanted to live, we give up those things. So Galatians 5.24, where we're headed, says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We die to that old way of life. The second thing he says is Christ has the power to live righteously so that we rely on his power instead of our own. Okay, he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So we die to our old way of life, and then we recognize, I can't do it on my own. I need His power in me. And so He does that through the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We cannot do it on our own. We need Him. And so Christ is in us now. Uh, Philippians says that He's working in us both to will and to do for His good pleasure. He's accomplishing these things in us. So first, we die to the old self. Secondly, we recognize His power in us. And third, From this point forward, my life is about faith in Christ, right? He's the main thing. And so he says, in the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Whole new approach to life. And so that means Christ is everything for the Christian. He's the reason you get out of bed in the morning. He's the one that determines how you spend your time. He's the one who sets the agenda for your life. Your life is lived by faith in the Son of God. That's what it's about. And so he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it all begins there. It's all about being with Christ. Um, Luke 9.23 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Every once in a while, I I talk to somebody um, who basically says, you know, the Christian life isn't working for me. You know, I've tried it a little bit, but it's just, it's just not working for me. And I think the reason why that happens, and, and you know, my, again, small survey sample size, but um, the, the experience I've had is that the reason it doesn't work for people is because they're not really embracing the whole package here, right? The, the idea that you have to be crucified with Christ is uncomfortable, and so people want to People want to dabble in the Christian life, and that's not really what we're being presented with here, right? With Jesus, you have to get off the fence. With Jesus, it's all or nothing. There's no neutral territory with Jesus. He says, you're either for me or against me. And so we have to decide, are we going to you know, rely on his strength for the, the life that we live, or are we going to do it on our own? Are we going to rely on the power of the Spirit or our own power? And, and recognize it has to be all about him. And then the very last thing, um, Paul goes on to say, verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. 
So what he's saying is, if salvation comes through works of the law, if it's something, like if, if you can be good enough to earn your salvation, then why did Christ die? So this is just a tip for evangelism. Um, if you're talking to anybody who has any kind of a religious background, ask them why Jesus had to die. Why did he have to die? That's Paul's point here, and it's really brilliant. You know, if, if Jesus died on the cross, it must have been for something. It must have been really important, right? You can flip what he says around. You can say, since righteousness is not through the law, then Christ died for a very significant purpose. He died to save us, to justify us, to make us right in God's sight. This week, there's, there's a particular phrase that God has laid on my heart from all of this um, that I just I can't get away from. And it's that phrase there in verse 20, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that is powerful. I just want to point out a couple things about that phrase. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. First, notice how personal it is. So often, the New Testament talks about us, right? So Ephesians 5.2 says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And there's, there's a beautiful, rich reality in that too. But look how personal this is here. The Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me. Have you ever considered the incredible love of God for you personally? That he loves you, Right? that Christ loves you individually, and that, yeah, that he gave himself for you. Uh, Each of these words is important. Christ loves you. He knows about your sin. Like, none of us are hiding anything from him. He knows everything about you. He knows all of your fears and all of your failures, and and yet he loves you. And then he gave himself for you. Hebrews 12 says that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, for the joy set before him. Well, what, what was that joy, right? Well, I, I, part of it obviously is pleasing his heavenly father, but part of it, I think, was, was, was me, right? Christ died for me. He loved me, and he gave himself for me, and that is true for each one of us. Christ loves you, and he gave himself for you. Uh, we're we're going to go to communion um, together right now. Um, Dan, if you, if you want to come up here. But I want us to, to just consider the reality of what this passage is telling us. Right? The Lord's Supper is, is a reminder. It's a, it's a renewal of the covenant that we have with Christ. It's for those who have placed their faith in Christ. And the reason we're able to do this, the reason we're able to come before the Lord and celebrate communion is because we have been made right with God. We have been justified by faith in Christ. And so the righteousness of Christ, just like that old catechism says, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to your account, which means you have full fellowship with the Father. There's nothing No barrier there. You have full fellowship with the Father, just like Jesus has full fellowship with the Father. We have that kind of equal standing before God. 
And so the Lord's Supper is just rich with imagery. Like we, we see that it, the body and the blood represent, or the, I'm sorry, the bread and the juice represent the, the body and the blood of Christ. So it's a representation of the sacrifice that he made. Um, we also see that this is like a meal and it represents fellowship. Um, fellowship with God, but also fellowship with each other. There's like a unity that we experience in communion. But what I want, I want for us to focus on today is how personal it is. Each and every person who takes communion, every person who has made that public profession of faith in Christ and comes forward and takes communion is entering into fellowship once again with Christ. And, and that phrase, he loved me and gave himself for me. Christ loves you. And when we go to, to the Lord's Supper here, and, and you guys can come forward and take this and then go back and be seated, we'll take it together. Um, but as you do this, remember how personal this is, right? This, this intimate fellowship with Christ, our Savior. Um, let's pray. Our Father, we are so mindful of the fact that we cannot, through our own righteousness, be made right before you. Lord, our, our sins are before us, just as we read in Psalm 51, Lord, our sins are before us, and we recognize, Father, that they have separated us from a holy God, and yet, Lord, we are so grateful for what is ours in Christ. Lord, may, may we be closely identified with Christ, Lord, we are in Christ, as Paul describes, Lord, that our whole lives are wrapped up in Him. Father, that we are able to receive justification by faith in Christ. And, and Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here today that has not come to that place of putting their faith in Christ, Lord, that today might be the day. Lord, that today they would uh, repent of their sins and embrace the good news of the gospel that it is not through trying harder and being a good person and somehow uh, making ourselves right before we can come before you, but, Lord, it is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today that has not made that decision, that today would be the day that they would put their faith in Christ. Lord, as we, as we remember the Lord's Supper, Father, we just thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you loved us and gave yourself for us. It's in your name we pray, Christ. Amen.